Uh, mm. Rule number one, don't do leg day at 10 o'clock at night because mm-hmm. you won't sleep and all today, serious pain. Welcome to the Bottle of Brown podcast. I'm your host, Danny Paul. With me, as always, here in the Bob Media Studios is the captain of Columbus, the sultan of swing, the baron of bourbon. Leon Coventry, ladies and gentlemen. Danny, what a great, great Thursday this has been. Um, Explain. Well, can I just talk about my day already? Tell me about your day. Because my day sucked. (laughs) Uh, well, then I hate to rub it in, but today's day was great. <laughs> Originally, as you know, I'm a golfer, not a good Yeah, golfer, you look like you're in golf duds. I am. And I'm in Buckeye attire because it's day one of Ohio State. Ah, uh, yes. Ohio State football team's season. And uh, so I was out uh, playing Dove Canyon this morning mm. with some some friends, early start. That's a good course. And then uh, one of our mutual friends. Mr. T, Mr. Uh, no longer baseball player, hasn't played with me in 25 years. Mm. He played with me at Harris this afternoon. That's right. 36 holes today. Wow. 36 glorious holes. And uh, I'm beat. I'm wiped out. I, I feel like I'm 40, but uh, only to come home and have a delicious meal and watch my beloved Ohio State Buckeyes wallop minnesota in prime time so it was it was a wonderful day from start to finish and uh and i can't think of a better way to finish it than having glorious bourbon here with you quite the day indeed sir this thursday well i had a uh i had an uneventful day computer systems crashed unreasonable demands and uh i got back into the gym last night so that's positive you got to get back in it because I used to say this about uh, our friend Liam, who's no longer with us, is working out is like geology from Shawshank. It's about pressure and time. (laughs) You got to get in. You got to get in consistently. You got to get in on a regular basis. And so there is no banking time. There is no building up. It's got to, you got to do it every day or you got to do it every two days. You got to find a consistent schedule. So I got to get back in it. Everything hurts, but. As you said, we have our beloved Brown this evening. What is your Brown, yes. sir? For the best day Tonight, tonight's Brown is actually, it's delicious. It's Baker 7. Mm. I can't remember if I had a, I've had it on the show before, but it is outstanding. It comes to us from the good people at Jim Bean. So it's okay. a higher level. Really? And uh, it's 107 proof. I'm drinking the Baker 7 single barrel. And it's, it's outstanding. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful bourbon. And it's a, it's actually a gorgeous bottle too. So don't, don't let the Jim Bean scare you away and thinking that it's not a premium brand because it's, it is outstanding and I highly recommend it. It is a by itself bourbon. That is correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we got into 
bullet a few shows ago. And I know it's not that fair to say bourbon is bourbon, although your wife is certainly scraping the edges of the spectrum to pull everything she can. <laughs> but this this Jim Beam is worthy of a uh, of a sipper. It's Baker's Baker's Seven, and it's absolutely worthy of a sipper. It, it is a legit, high quality, delicious single barrel bourbon. So it it's something I think that anyone who who's a serious bourbon drinker, if they haven't tried it, they should. And uh, and and take all of your reservations about what Jim Bean might be to bourbon and throw that out the window and, and try some bakers. Okay. Awesome. Yep. So I am uh, you are? running another edition of around the Brown tonight. We went to India tonight. India. Tonight's Brown for me is going to be two tigers product of Goa, India. Antonio Jose Enriquez was a visionary entrepreneur, master distiller and man of the people. Rising from humble beginnings, he established the first distillery in Goa, India, 1965. Working side by side with the men and women of his distillery, Antonio realized that the exceptional spirits produced at his distillery were the result of his employees' passion for their craft. This is why he treated everyone as family. Blah, 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 blah. Two Tigers is handcrafted in small batches using the finest grains. The result is an unsurpassed smooth whiskey with notes of caramel and honey. Join the family as Two Tigers transports you to the blue skies and tropical sand of the beaches of Goa, India. And here comes a terrible state. description, but I'm excited mm-hmm. to hear how it goes. Mm. You can taste the honey. Oh, really? First Sweet, thing, huh? First thing that hits is the honey. Mm. You can taste the caramel. Okay. So they don't lie. It is caramel and honey. Certainly good. Mr. Jones, who won't be joining us tonight, sadly does not get to know what happens because I'm not going to share this until we post this episode. (laughs) Snooze, you lose, fucker. What's the proof on that thing? This one here is listed as carry the two, 86 proof. Okay, so it's mild. 43% alcohol by volume. Indian whiskey, no E, friends, W H I S K Y in the traditional sense. Okay. So now that we know what we're drinking, you want to continue talking about brown? Let's talk about Brown. Let's talk about Brown. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? What about, um, brown? That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Could I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? So for tonight's brown banter, when we discuss our beloved spirit, we go back to our friends, Whiskey Advocate. Now, we did do a lot of Whiskey Advocate. I have to say that July was very heavy on WhiskeyAdvocate.com. And so we departed from them. But I wanted to come back tonight to finish up a second part of a two-parter. The first one was the old-fashioned. Tonight, we're going to talk about the Manhattan The Manhattan cocktail, a simple recipe of American whiskey, sweet vermouth and bitters that predates the martini, yields myriad combinations to suit almost any whiskey lover. Rye, bourbon, really doesn't say. It works best. It says it works best, though. That's a very interesting call out on a Manhattan. Is that a rye Manhattan? That they're saying that. The rise are the best. Interesting. Yeah. However, many enjoy bourbon just fine, especially when matched with the right vermouth to balance its sweetness with bitterness and acidity. 
In fact, almost any style of whiskey you can enjoy will shine in a Manhattan. The modern Manhattan ratio is two to one whiskey to vermouth, but the original skewed the opposite with twice as much vermouth as whiskey. Try this lower proof rendition well suited to summer or find your sweet spot somewhere in between. So this goes back again to what we were talking about with prohibition, where you wanted to dump a ton of sugar into it because it was basically white lightning and it tasted awful. So the fact that the ratio has gone from two to one sweet to whiskey back to two to one whiskey, I think is a, a very nice evolution. Are you a Manhattan drinker, sir? <laughs> I've had one. I don't think I'm a vermouth fan. I think that's what the difference is for me, which is why I always go to the old fashioned. I like the butters. I mean, it's like butters, the bitters. The bitters. Um, I like the bitters. So virtually the only difference between the Manhattan and uh, an old fashioned is the vermouth. And the vermouth, I don't like yeah. I don't like vermouth in uh, martinis and I don't like it in a Manhattan. There are some that aren't as this is a terrible adjective, vermouthy. <laughs> they're not as <laughs> they're not as potent. Vermouth. Uh, and and that's okay with me. And hey, you know, your tastes change over time. So it's not like I've completely given up on it. I'm just eh, just not a fan. So here's an interesting part here. Later on in the article, it says four key elements for a Manhattan besides whiskey and how to hack them. Use fresh ice, lots of ice. If you stir with too little ice, a greater amount of that ice must melt to sufficiently lower the temperature because you want your Manhattan cold. Mm -hmm. Sweet vermouth. Manhattan drinkers are as fanatical about their vermouth as they are their whiskey. As an ingredient, it's bringing a lot at the table. Sweetness, acidity, weight, tannic structure, and botanical depth. In vermouth's absence, look to other fortified wines. Tawny Port, Oloroso Sherry, and Madeira can also yield a tasty Manhattan variation. There you go. Huh. Well, try something you different. don't need any vermouth, sir. You can eschew a fruit-forward red wine or even grape juice can do the job by adding extra bitters for balance. Done and okay. done. You're going to have a Manhattan, I can tell. I'm going to keep messing with it. I'll keep messing. I'll find the Manhattan I like. Uh, similar to our discussions on the old-fashioned, the garnish is key. A nicely mm -hmm. trimmed, wide, pithless plank of lemon peel rubbed around the rim and twisted over the top before being dropped in, does it. Or try something non-traditional. Deep, layered flavors offer lots of inspiration for creative garnishes. Uh, diving deeper into the spice rack, bartender and instructor on Masterclass, Ryan Chetiawardena. Watch your language. A, that's a good one, isn't it? That is a <laughs> name, dude. I wouldn't even have tried it, so Ryan well done. Country of origin, please. Doesn't say. Can you use it in a sentence? We're gonna uh, we're gonna assume it's somewhere out there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, the masterclass chef prefers a bay leaf or a sprig of rosemary. Not your typical citrus-based garnish. Interesting indeed. The classic dilemma of the Manhattan is bourbon or rye. Within these styles exist a lot of nuance. Uh, long name master chef often takes the middle ground with a high rye bourbon. I like the corn sweetness over a straight rye, but currently I'm on wheated bourbons with a little extra age on them to give a balance mm -hmm. of sweetness, creaminess, and mm -hmm. wood spice. They are milder, the weedy ones. The first one they pull out is larceny. I know mm -hmm. you've had larceny. Yep, I got a couple of bottles of it. 
Maker's Mark, uh, yeah. Bullets. So again, we're getting into our mixers. mixers and then, yeah. uh, this is an interesting one. Rossville Union. Never seen it before. Hmm. Fan favorite Old Forester makes an appearance here. Nice. But uh, the Manhattan is interesting to me because it appears in a Simpsons episode, if you recall. I do. Remember the one I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Can I back out of the Manhattan though for a second? Yeah. I would like to completely derail this conversation and say that I need a bartender. If you happen to be one of the magic 25 out there, I need a breakfast whiskey drink worth a damn. Ooh. I don't like, I don't like screwdrivers and I don't like bloody Mary's and clearly we're, we're Brown and whiskey drinkers here. I need a breakfast whiskey drink. I need something to rival the Bloody Mary because that thing is just, that is just a, a bunch of cold trash and I don't want any part of it. And I thought you were all about the bourbon cream. Bourbon cream's good. I throw up my coffee, but that's not, I want, I want a, a, a real drink. So, well, my friends, thanks to the Google, I got something for you with the remaining minutes of our segment. It is known as the American breakfast. It's a good start. This is from Difference. So for discerning drinkers, you go to Difference Guide. This one's differenceguide.com. D-I-F-F-O-R-D. You start with an old-fashioned glass. Good start. Solid. Mm -hmm. Garnish it with a grapefruit zest. Grapefruit. Okay, we're in breakfast. I get it. Go there. Shake all ingredients with ice and strain into an ice-filled glass because your ingredients are going to be two full ounces of bourbon whiskey, a half a fluid ounce of grapefruit juice, pink preferably, and a half a fluid ounce of maple syrup. Get out. This one must be interesting. That is interesting. The citrus fresh bourbon-laced drink would be great with your morning muesli. There are approximately Mm. 213 calories in one serving of American breakfasts. Do your worst, sir. You know what? I am going to try to give that a try before our next show. Get yourself some pancakes. While you're making Mm -hmm. your pancakes, give a little squeech of the syrup into your bourbon. And then while you're having your half a cut grapefruit, squeeze a little bit of juice in there, mix it all around with a stir, and voila! Garnish it with a little bit of the zest you made off the grapefruit, and you got yourself... The American breakfast. I love it. Are you, are, do you drink Bloody Marys? Am I way off base on no, this? No, no, I don't drink Bloody Marys. If anything, because I, I think this is a fascinating question because you scratched an itch that I was kind of silently dealing with. I usually go to the old uh, uh, screwdriver. Yeah. Just because, because what do you it drink tastes like trash. Yeah. What else do you drink? I, I mean, I'll do the mimosa. That's kind of fun, but yeah, that's I very... Yeah, it's very, you know, that, you you know, next thing you do is you drink a Zima and then you go and you go shoot yourself in the face. That's pretty much where you're at. I, I don't know. I like, I like mimosas. That's not fair. I but. think mimosas have their place, but I think that's an occasion drink. That's not a, hey, honey, I'm tired. I'm going to go rest. Do you want to make a mimosa? Yeah. Like, how do you, how, you don't put a bottle of champagne back together. Once you pop that thing, it's done. You got to drink all of it. You got to kill it. Yep. 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 So this is nice. This is a little bit of bourbon, a little maple syrup, a little grapefruit juice. Get yourself American breakfast from Difference Guy. I like it. You know what you need to, they didn't add in here, but I'm going to say you need to put a really thick cut, peppery, mapley bacon in that drink 
Now you got a breakfast drink. Now you got something that rivals uh, a Bloody Mary. And I, I think that's what I'm going to try. I think you have the first entry in the bottle of brown mixology catalog, sir. We should call that the Leon. Well, and when I'm reading this, it's nothing but sweet, but you need something with a little bit of grit mm-hmm. if you're going to make this a morning Well, I figured the grapefruit juice would be tart enough to offset this, the sugary of the maple because you're going to get a lot of spice in the bourbon, right? Yeah, I guess if you pick the right, right. bourbon. I mean, yeah. bacon wrapped bacon, that's that's American. Yeah, yeah. Very good, yeah, sir. I like it. Okay. You got drink. American breakfast. You'll have to give us an update next time. I will report on it next week. And we are keep me honest. I will. I will keep you honest. I'll put it in the show notes. And uh, that wraps up talking about Brown. Brown news. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into business news. News team. Assemble. And I got news for you. Tonight's business news comes to us courtesy of Bloomberg Wealth, your guide to a life well spent. This particular one was interesting because this article in Bloomberg talks specifically to Leon's purview, which is landlordiness. I am one of the most hated and loathed professions apparently i used to be lawyers but apparently it's it's trickled into landlords somehow well yeah i mean it was it was bankers in 2009 right so it's just your turn yeah it's my turn yeah just grab your ankles it's your turn yep the united states is witnessing the biggest increase in tenants in history in july the rental occupancy rate hit 97 percent, allowing landlords to flex unprecedented pricing power people who signed new leases last month paid 17 percent more than the prior renter the highest surge on record. Business Week feature dives into the situation. Leases are being signed within hours. Tenants rejected multiple times are being forced to stay in hotels. And experts are calling the country's shortage of affordable rentals, quote, the worst since at least post-World War II, unquote. Why mm-hmm. the squeeze? A ton of people are searching for rentals right now. The suburban home price surge means that Americans who want a backyard and more space but can't afford a down payment are renting. Mm-hmm. Remote work is giving people flexibility while others delayed moves during the pandemic. Some renters are high earners who historically would have made enough money to buy a home. The average income of new lease signers in July hit a record $69,000. Rents are soaring in places like Phoenix, my hometown, up 16.5% last June, and Vegas, up 13%. Wall Street and major companies are looking to profit. And it goes on to talk about a number of different investment firms actually buying up rental properties. So that's the new grift is investment banks are buying up rental properties and single family homes in place of the traditional slumlord. Right. The article goes on to say, if you're a prospective renter or know someone who is read this incredibly helpful guide by Bloomberg opinions, Alexis Leondis, she's got suggestions for landing the lease. One offer more money may not be the best approach. Think twice about putting in an offer on an apartment site unseen. You do want to look at it. Be on your best behavior during a visit to the property. Brokers for the owner or landlord will report back on things like whether you took off your shoes or if you just fired questions randomly about water pressure and building policies and start practicing your penmanship. In this environment, you'll want to write an introductory letter to your potential landlords. Keep it short, 
Don't reveal too many details, but do reference attractive features about the apartment and your prior rental history. As someone who's on the other side of this single pane of glass, Mr. Mann, what do you say to this? So when you describe that, when I think about that, it almost seems more New York-y, mm-hmm. you know, like a Manhattan type description. Uh, I obviously talked about a lot. I live in Southern California and the area that we live in is absolutely in a housing crisis. And we have been successfully, uh, you know, we weathered the COVID storm pretty well. I have a couple senior facilities, which we took very COVID very, very seriously, obviously, uh, because, you know, the seniors uh, being in, in such a, a risky age group, for COVID. And, uh, you know, we had to take extra steps there. Um, but as far as these four points, do they apply to my world? Not really. My world is uh, apartments, right? And I know they're talking about apartments and a lot of this, but my apartments, a uh, little background, uh, my grandfather, my grandmother started the company over 60 years ago. They built all these apart, uh, nine properties up from scratch. Um, and my grandfather really wanted to build properties where people could be proud to live and didn't have to pay everything they had in disposable income to live there. So it's really easy to get behind that type of a mantra. It's really easy to support that type of a uh, a mission statement. And so when I had the opportunity to come over and, uh, you know, you know, lead this, this company in its third generation of, of ownership. Um, it, it's very much a small family business that you always constantly hear described, uh, when all the politicians are talking about, you know, small business, that's what I am. I am the legal department, the ID, IT department, the HR department, the president, the CEO, I'm everything, everything falls, uh, on my shoulders and, uh, and my two cousins that also work in in the office together and you know we 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 work very very hard to keep that going despite all the hatred and uh obstacles that are put in our way and i will tell you california is not very friendly to landlords and uh it's been it's been tricky which you know if if you're out there you're one of those people that are against landlords let, let me describe to you what it seemed, what it's like on this side of the fence. We are uh, people trying to make a living just like everyone else, uh, not not rolling in money uh, over here, and we're not we're not crushing it because where we where we like to keep our rent. Um, but we we are of the belief that if you get somebody to live in your facility or in your property for 20, 25 years, it's a heck of a lot better than turning it over, over and over and hiking up the rent. So we don't do that. The other thing for us is, yeah, do we, you know, if one of these points is, you know, make sure that you, your penmanship and all that, that's garbage. What really matters when you come in is do you make a decent impression? And the reason that's important, especially in the state of California is, once you're in, it is extremely hard to get you out. And uh, when you come in, we have to be so, so careful because you may put on one face, 
But then what happens is you come in and you move in and you violate every rule in the book. And we have to go through tremendous, expensive legal action so that we can protect the other residents um, and, and their livelihoods that have been living there because maybe someone's coming in uh, abusing uh, the, the property. Great example. Got one property. People came in, very, very friendly people, good credit report, what have you. Um, said all the right things in the interview. They moved in. And then so did their 13 family members into a one-bedroom <laughs> place. And um, they're obviously incredibly loud, multiple complaints from all the tenants around Sounds them. Sounds like a violation Even of the fire code, too. Yeah, even to the point where they actually had an open fire that they put in next to the property. They had an open fire. That's right. Open fire in the state of California. <laughs> uh, and we're very strapped on what we can do about it. And um, it's it's painful for us. Uh, we're also on the hook for everything. And these buildings are aging, right? I, I told you the company started 60 years ago and so did the first building. And, you know, as you built them, our youngest building is 22 and our oldest building is a little over 60. These buildings, they have pipes that are going underneath, right? You know, they're, they're, they're withering trees and roots are, are ripping foundations and everything apart. That's what happens as a homeowner, but take that as a, as a property manager and multiply it by a hundred because these people that live in there, sometimes they treat it like their home and they care about it, but sometimes they treat it like a rental. And if you drive it like a rental, you live in it like a rental, you're going to treat it like a rental, which means all those costs for maintenance go way, way up. Throw in that people aren't required to pay rent um, because of COVID throw in that we are in one of the highest inflationary periods we've seen in our lifetime uh, in rapid inflation right now. And a sheet of plywood is ridiculously expensive. We talked about that, Danny, last week. And uh, every, every one of my vendors has upped their prices somewhere between 15 and 20%. The utilities have upped their prices. The water and electricity in California is just going through the roof. And we are strapped legally by the state that we can't raise rents over a certain amount every year. So you have to not only try to make up for what's going on, but predict what's coming down the future and hope to God that you can be in at least even by the end of the next year, because you only get one chance at, you know, trying to get your rents right. And obviously you don't want to have anybody, uh, Nobody wants, you don't want anybody to be homeless at the end of all of this, right? So you have to balance all that at the same time. And it's tough. It's, it's really, really, really tough. So when you're out there looking for a place to live, remember that if you were in the other side, what kind of tenant would you want to have? And try to be that tenant, right? Try to explain to them that that's, you know, I'm a resident that's not going to be bumping my music at two in the morning. I don't have loud parties. I'm not going to cause a bunch of disruption. I'm not going to destroy your place because there's a very large percentage of tenants that are losers. Like we lose money, right? You come in, you don't live there that long. We got to flip the unit. We got, 
it, the deposit's never enough. A lot of times when we're flipping units, it costs us somewhere between 1200 and five grand for every time. And there's nobody paying that in deposit. So, you know, those, you know, people that are complaining about the deposits they lost and all that, it, we don't make any of that back. We got to, we got to replace the carpet. We got to stretch the carpet. We got to clean the carpet. We got to paint the walls. We got to plug all the holes that you put in the hole. You know, we got to, you, you damaged the place and you didn't treat it like your own almost every time. And we get it. That's part of it. Right. So I know I'm rambling a lot about all this, but I'm just saying it from a perspective of a landlord, try to put yourself in their shoes. If you want to live in a place and you are looking for a place to live, understand that we're just looking for somebody that's not going to be a big loser from a financial standpoint for us. And that's it. That's literally it. So if you can present yourself as that, you're, you're in good shape. Be quiet. Pay your bills on time. That's it. That's really it. You I think it's worth noting quiet. that with all of these moratoriums, which sound great uh, at, a, at a certain level, you know, don't kick people out who are kind of destitute, don't have anything to deal with. The challenge with that is you still have to pay your mortgage. So that moratorium doesn't go up the chain. It stops at the banks because the banks are allowed to collect on you. And if you can't pay your mortgage, then the banks collect on your property. That's according right. to that. And so I thought that was, was a little a bit, <clears throat> when you talk about the moratoriums and you talk about what happens, it's, I hate to trash the bankers because Mr. Jones is a banker, but at some point the banks have an unordinate amount of power, even 13 years after they let everything go to shit. So mm -hmm. I wanted to throw that little side note in there as well, because there's going to be a tenant versus landlord war probably for the end of time. Mm-hmm. But in this particular mm -hmm. climate with inflation the way it is and with rents going up, yeah, you can blame the landlord for rents going up, but a lot of it is supply and demand. There's demographic shifts going on. There's more people than there were before because in 78 to 81 is the nadir and the birth rate. Mm -hmm. And so the people looking for rent right now are in their 20s and 30s, and that population is skyrocketing with the millennials. Yep. So there's a lot of factors going on. It's, it's complicated. It's not perfect. Well, here's a good example, Danny. I'm at sitting at 98% occupancy right there. That's, that's incredible, right? Uh, I raised rent between 4 and 5%. I'm legally allowed to up to almost 9%. I didn't because I don't. These are real people that are just trying to get through this pandemic and through this rapid inflation, just like anybody else. So I have the benefit of being a small business and agile enough and to make these types of decisions. And these, these decisions have been the way that our company has been running forever and ever. Right. And I also know that there are some really bad eggs out there. All I'm going to say is if you think that landlords collect rent and just literally take it and put it in their pocket as profit, you don't get it. There's so many expenses to owning a property. So many, everything from the legal, the insurance, the utilities, the taxes. That's another thing. You said the banks, the mm -hmm. banks still collect. So does uncle Sam. He, he never slowed down what he what we need to pay. I would that would have been wonderful. Now it told yeah, us we're not allowed to collect income tax on unemployment. Yeah. So all of the stimulus, yeah. they still get their cut. Yeah, yeah. Our property tax. You're not allowed 
to, we're not allowed to collect rent, but you're allowed to collect property tax from us. So it's fascinating. Um, and it's crushing. And it was, uh, and, and, you know, our company, again, we're, we are super engaged. We know that people are struggling. We, are, we know the, the COVID relief bill inside and out. We've been working with um, no, no less than 30 or 40 people trying to help them get through this, and we're doing it together. And at the end of the day, uh, if you find a good place and a good community and you talk to the people and say, yeah, these, these landlords will take care of you, stick, stick with them because I do know bad ones. And I know why these rules do exist because just like anything else, you, <laughs> you make rules because there's bad eggs out there, but yep. usually it's the good eggs that end up paying. The rules are for the so, bad apples. Yep. That's right. And you just keep that in mind. I guess that's all I wanted to say about that one article is that, hey, if you're looking for a place to live, put yourself in the landlord's shoes, make yourself appealing, knowing all the things that I laid out today on everything they have to deal with. And, uh, you know, and hey, at the end of the day, if I can't make, if I can't finagle, you know, the dollars and cents to work, which it's, it's razor thin. If I can't get it all to work, then, then I default. <laughs> and if I default on the loans and the bank will sell us, and I assure you that the landlord that picks it up is not going to be one that anybody in there wants to live with. So, right. You don't want the bank as a landlord. So keep the humanity in the business. Mm -hmm. Come on. That wraps up our special segment of business. <laughs> well, let's go to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Whatever. Tonight's crank file comes to us from iflscience.com. For those of you not familiar with IFL Science, it started on Facebook as I fucking love science. I love it. IFLS has grown from a simple science chick in her dorm room to a glowing empire. Today's iflscience.com comes to us meat alternative made from Yellowstone hot spring fungus. This great a meat. Cutting out animal products from our diets is catching on with more and more people, whether for health or environmental reasons. So there is an increasing hunger for alternative protein sources. Mm -hmm. uh, the article goes on to say there's a microorganism that can live in extreme environmental conditions in Yellowstone National Park. Samples of a microorganism were collected from a hot spring during this project, and this eventually became the basis of a new food source. This microorganism is a fungus named Fusarium strain flavolapis. If eating food made from fungus gives you the ick, you probably shouldn't look up about how a lot of processed meat is made. Soylent green is made of people. While this is not the first fungus-based meat alternative, corn has been serving up their microprotein for decades. This is one certainly intriguing. Nature's Find, which is the company that's processing this, now claims their products contain all 20 amino acids and 50% more protein than tofu. This is very handy for people on a vegan diet who have to make sure that their diet both has enough protein and also contains all the essential amino acids that the human body needs. The products currently listed on the website are breakfast patties and cream cheese. What do you think, man? Hot fungus protein. I think, and I could not mean this any more legitimately, but you first. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy I'll who likes a good it. hot dog from time to time. 
Yeah, but honestly, you know, you first tell me how it is and I'll eat it. But uh, I'm right, not going to so be the first I chump. wanted to try and find some of that seaweed that tastes like bacon because I'm fucking in. Yeah. If it tastes good, I'll eat it. Yeah. I'm not interested so much in where it comes from because I don't trust anything comes from anywhere anymore. Yeah. Um, I am I am a GMO skeptic, I guess is the term. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it comes back to if it's considered healthy by a nutritionist or a medical professional, then I don't, I don't give a fuck what it is. If, it, if they can make it taste good. Like I tried the Beyond Burger and I tried the Impossible Burger. We talked about that, yeah. And those are good. It turns out they don't really have a lot of nutritional value aside from your standard ground beef or ground turkey patty. So They're just not meat. Right. You're fooling yourself into thinking that it's any better. I mean, a, a fucking Oreo cookie is vegan. So it, what, what matters to me is, is it healthy? Is it sustainable? Is it something that's going to do long-term damage to my body? I don't particularly care where it comes from. I mean, we're talking about a fungus. Uh, mushrooms are fungus. Right. People love mushrooms. Look, we need to figure something out as the population continues to grow of really good food. We're smart people. We can figure this out. Good food that doesn't absolutely destroy the planet with our ability to consume it. And if fungus is one of those things or seaweed or one of those things or whatever, right? We like fish. And then when everyone says they like fish, the next thing you know, Japan, China, and the U.S. go out and net every damn fish in the whole fucking planet all of a sudden we've disrupted the entire ocean's ecosystem mm -hmm. if there are things that we can do that are good for us and healthy that taste good and won't damage the planet actually could possibly help the planet because my understanding that the molds and the funguses out there are doing a lot of the work on cleaning up the pollution mm -hmm. uh, in the air so hey I'm all for it if it, if it tastes good. And, uh, and I, it doesn't even have to taste that good. Is there anything that you can think of, Danny, that um, that is really good for you and also you really enjoy consuming? Um, I mean, you're a vegetable guy. So other than that, like vegetables and fruits are the only thing that I can think of. Um, tofu isn't bad if you put something on it. Mm -hmm. You know, there there are ways to eat vegan food where it's extremely good, like Peppers, if you use the seeds from peppers, you can make things absolutely flavorful. You've got a number of different spices on the rack. Um, mm -hmm. Cumin, paprika, curry. So if you can figure out how to prepare it, because that to me, everything is in preparation. I mean, that that kind of bleeds into a potential parenting segment. But preparation to me is everything. I don't particularly care what the base is or where it comes from. If you prepare it and it tastes good and it's healthy, check, check, check. So if it's fungus, if it's like there's grasshopper protein powder, now, okay, whatever, don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm currently eating pea protein powder and they've synthesized it and it tastes like vanilla. So you put orange juice in it, you got yourself a creamsicle, but it's made mm -hmm. from peas and not whey or you know animal protein. So again, you need what you need to survive provided you get everything that you need. To me, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, to to your final point here, the interesting part about this is the company that's developing this has also developed a fermentation method to make the fungus into a food source without the need for sun, rain, or soil. Boom. In just a few days, the filaments grow and interlace, forming a mat with a texture similar to muscle fiber. After this, the resulting product can be made into a solid liquid 
or powder, which means it can be made in space. We just Ooh. found a way to feed ourselves on the way out. That's fun. That so is fun. I, I will guinea pig this because I am intrigued. I am intrigued of ways to find protein without all of the ways that contribute to monopolistic forces like big meat, big chicken, big pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really, and that's, that's, this is, this is lighting me up, but uh, yeah. that wraps up the crank file. Let's get on to your favorite because Florida. This one is interesting because it coincides with Shark Week. Uh, This is from the New York Post. New York Post has been providing a lot of good stuff for us, so we got to thank them. The headline is, what a tool. Disrespectful man uses shark teeth as a beer can opener. (laughs) A gang of disrespectful U.S. fishermen are being chewed out online after they filmed themselves cruelly and perhaps illegally using a helpless beached shark to open a can of beer. They had originally posted footage to their heinous act TikTok in May, but re-uploaded it to YouTube where it sparked a fury among animal lovers. It was just a bit of fun. West Virginia fisherman Wyatt Dallison cheekily told local media of the stunt, which he and buddy Cody Scott filmed after catching a sand tiger shark in Florida. In Florida. In the appalling footage originally updated, uploaded to hunting and fishing TikTok channel at Outdoor Chaos, the fisherman can be seen holding the critter's mouth open while his fellow Jack and Napes look on in amusement. Then in a shocking move, one of the bozos decides to smash open a can of bush light apple. Oh, pause. Pause. the end. You, you almost could have played. I'm a pretty cool guy card here. Almost bush light apple bush light apple on its teeth whereupon it gets stuck in the shark's mouth before falling out and rather than leave the joke finished and done he picks it up and shotguns what's left because you know you certainly don't waste bush light apple no i mean (laughs) mean, you bothered to buy it right oh you know i went to school in florida right and (laughs) i I can tell you where I was um, in the Daytona area, shark attacks were actually very common. So I don't have the, the same, I don't know. I guess I, I don't have the Greenpeace uh, purview on this article that most people should, or even I should, because I do have a little bit of fuck you sharks because i was out there in the in the water and a guy next to me i actually it i i'm pretty sure it brushed against me but it bit another guy and took Ooh. his achilles off next to me wow uh that i went to school with and uh it, it they they can be nasty little fuckers down there so um these guys were not taking it out on a shark that bit their friend's achilles off i know that uh i just there's and i and i hey defenseless animal you know what that all that all that goes along with it i'm not condoning what these guys did they're complete jackasses uh but uh, these are not completely helpless animals here let's not let's not pretend these are kitty cats or puppies they're playing with here they'll bite you right in your face 
Indeed, Florida law dictates that protected shark species, such as a sand tiger, must remain in the water with the gills submerged when fishing from shore or from a vessel, according to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. When they found out that what they did was illegal, they did show some remorse. So credit where credit is due. Uh, Probably wasn't the greatest idea, but you know, at the end of the day, we did everything we could to make sure the shark was okay. We were trying to keep it in the wash so it still gets water in its gills, but people are allowed to think what they want. So made for some good TikTok. Listen, the shark will be fine, everyone. Sharks, I fished a lot. They'll be fine. They'll be, you could keep them out of the water for quite a while and they'll be just fine when you throw them back in. And it's, is it animal cruelty? Yeah. Okay. Check that box. But they're fine. You know, I, I, I think, I think really the, the call out in this article is that they're, really dumb people (laughs) doing really dumb things with animals and we should make fun of them in honor of this poor shark that that went through all this west virginia and they went all the way to florida (laughs) you know it's sad when people are being recruited (laughs) they don't have enough insanity (laughs) oh west virginia the article finishes up. This isn't the first time some TikTok anglers have been excoriated for abusing fish. This past June, fishermen sparked an online backlash for filming themselves tickling stingrays. Takes all kinds. Mm. Anyway, that wraps up the crank file. We'll be right back. We can make kids right now. That's why we're here. It's not the years, it's the mileage. Tonight's parenting segment is kind of got one foot in the crank file and kind of got one foot in parenting. And I know that some of our listeners may have young children like we do, but some of our listeners may have adult children. So this one kind of uh, checks a couple of boxes because this goes into the realm of the landlord tenant relationship. So we're kind of wrapping up a whole bunch of stuff together. And this one comes from the guardian. This one is dated on 27th of August, 2021 judge says Michigan couple must pay son $30,000 for throwing at his porn collection. (laughs) Ruling says parents had no legal right to quote, destroy property that they dislike unquote pay attention leon you're a landlord the article begins a judge in michigan has ordered a couple to pay thirty thousand dollars to their son for throwing out his pornography collection u.s district judge paul maloney his decision this week came eight months after david working 43 won a lawsuit against his parents working said that they had no right to throw out his collection of films magazines and other items which he said was then worth twenty nine thousand dollars that's a that's a collection Seriously, is, think about your porn is, collection if you ever had one. Allegedly, asking for a friend, what was it I'd worth? Love, I'd love to know what the how he valued that. Was it worth twenty nine thousand dollars? Do you watch? Have you ever watched that show, um, Storage Wars? Yes. 
okay this feels very much like that where they like they're picking things out of the the one that they just bought and they're like oh this old sock thirty dollars this uh this this uh broken tape fifteen dollars who would pay fifteen dollars for that broken tape who the fuck would pay twenty nine thousand dollars for your sticky porn collection no one is the correct answer you have the playboy with marilyn monroe in it does he have the playboy with pam anderson in it does he have some critical piece of lore in the epoch that is pornography uh, you know, at some point, if you're going to do an evaluation, then some of this stuff actually has to be worth something. If this is straight up, I paid $29,000 for all this stuff. That is a lot of porn. Listen, I need to make certain assumptions based on the little bit of information you're giving me. And <laughs> one of those assumptions is this guy's living with his parents. Let's just start there. <laughs> living with his parents. How old is he? 43? 43. Down on his luck. 43 <laughs> ladies and gentlemen of the jury this person is 43 living with his parents claiming he has a porn collection worth 29 grand i rest my case uh here's the kicker working was living at his parents grand haven home for 10 months after a divorce so apparently the wife knew about the $29,000 porn collection as well did that we're making a lot of assumptions, but I think we're right. I think we're right. He likes porn. Well, here's the kicker, Mr. Landlord. In his ruling this week, the judge followed a value set by an expert, MLive.com. Working's parents were also ordered to pay $14,000 in damages to the attorney just for fees. So they paid 30 to the kid, and they paid half that to the attorney. <laughs> Good God. Attorneys always are the ones that making the money anyway. Oh. In his ruling in December last year, Judge Maloney said there is no question that the destroyed property was David's property. Defendants repeatedly admitted that they destroyed the property. Working's parents said they had a right to act as their son's landlords. Maloney responded, defendants do not cite to any statute or case law to support their assertion that landlords can destroy property that they dislike. I do have a question, though. A, a lot of this article that you're referencing calls out the difference in money value between dollars and pounds, or yeah, it looks like pounds or sterling. The um, is did this occur in England? No, this was just picked up by the Guardian, which is a British newspaper. Sometimes the best news gets picked up outside this country because we're too focused on bullshit. Okay. I mean, some of my, okay. I mean, you've, you've seen some of the places where I find this stuff. Like I got to scrape, I can't go to MSN or CNN. Yeah. Like I barely get good stuff from CNN. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you go to, if you go to CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, you're basically going to see two things, Afghanistan and COVID. Yeah. But it's all politics. <laughs> so I'm pretty if sure I know other what, things are happening. Yeah, <laughs> if I want to know what else is going on in the world, I can't go to the main ones because it's politics and politics sells newspapers. So, okay, great. But I don't want to know about politics. I want to know about other stuff. So mm -hmm. I'll give you an idea of why the guardian was such a good one to us. But uh, this is an interesting one in terms of the precedent that it sets because yes, he was 43. Yes. He was going through a divorce. Yes. He had uh a lot of pornography. Let's establish that. The fact of the matter is he's a legal adult. 
His parents were his landlords. It doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about whether or not he paid rent. So it's not a financial transaction. It's simply that when you have another adult under your roof and you are the owner, they are subletting. They are a tenant. Yes, they are. Therefore, you have no right under any existing precedent or case law to destroy private property. So if any of you in the Magic 23 are parents with college-age children and they want to come home and live with you while they figure out what to do with themselves, or like these folks, you have a uh, middle-aged child coming back after a personal tragedy, remember, they're a tenant by law. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You got any other thoughts on this one? Well, I think uh, if you're really worried about it, you could put together a contract. And in the contract, as a landlord, I can call out certain things. For example, I can absolutely call out no pornography. That's my rule. I can do that. Totally legal. Totally legal. Wow. It's my place. I can say that. Uh, I don't. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that wouldn't live in my properties anymore. But you do have the ability as a, <laughs> as a landlord to make all kinds of things. Some of them are very reasonable. No open fires, no barbecues, no heavy pots that sit on your plant, on your railings so that they fall over and hit people in the head when they walk by. Oh, yeah. These are very reasonable requests. They're also not law. They're also not, um, there's no standard uh rules around them but when you have house rules as they call them or whatever the contract lists you can you can make them so if you're concerned that you have a foreign loving uh infatuated child and you don't like porn in your home i i suggest you write a contract saying i do not allow this in my home and if we find it it will be disposed of that would have got those parents out of that under said contractual law. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Yeah. And I think that wraps up parenting. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into Leon Loads. So far, Danny, I haven't heard a single logical reason. No, no, don't accept this. It's frustrating. And we haven't cured cancer. We have not cured cancer. I don't know the answer. I'm just ranting about it. Leon, uh, in honor of your wonderful day today, I'm sure there's not a lot that you're (laughs) enraged about. So I'm going to cut you some slack on whether or not you have some unique content. I would like to offer a follow-up to a previous episode where you ranted about Disneyland. Mm-hmm. This one popped up in Bloomberg Travel. Uh, it's dated August 18th, so you can tell that I held on to it for a while because I really wanted to know if there was... You knew that I was going to have a good day. You knew that there, I was going to have... If there was, was a sunset due. to this, I wanted to make sure that I, you know, <laughs> for the good of the show. Walt Disney Company unveiled a new ride reservation system in its U.S. theme parks that lets guests willingly willing to pay enjoy extra shorter lines for some of the most sought after attractions. The Genie Plus service that debuts this fall will cost 15 or 20 bucks a day at US theme parks, Disney said Wednesday, on top of the usual $1,000 admission. Mm-hmm. Guests will get faster access to more than 15 attractions in California parks, like the Haunted Mansion, Big Thunder Mountain, and over 
40 in Florida via a special line called the Lightning Lane. Mm-hmm. For an additional fee, visitors can also reserve a spot at two of the most popular rides at each resort. Disney, world's largest theme park operator, has been making sweeping changes to its resort's business, partly driven by the pandemic, but also to improve the guest experience and boost revenue. Last year, the company began requiring that visitors make reservations to enter its parks. This month, Disney unveiled a new annual pass program in California, which also requires advanced bookings. The Genie mm-hmm. Plus service will cost 20 bucks a day in California and $15 in Florida. Disney declined to say how much it will charge for reservations to the couple of rides like Seven Dwarfs Mine Train at Florida's Magic Kingdom and Radiator Springs Racers at Disney California Adventures, which will require an extra fee. Thoughts on this one? Let me tell you a little story. I'm, well, I'm not going to get that mad because you're going to be surprised on what side of the fence I fall on this, but let me tell you a little story about Triple B and I before we were married. I took a day off from work. I didn't have any days off, so a very unlike me move because I'm a workaholic, I called in sick, which means I'm going to go out and do a real traditional American sick day, which is I'm not sick, but we're going to go out and have a great day. And we went to Cedar Point, Ohio. Mm-hmm. A phenomenal park. Famous. Yeah. And I'm not that familiar with the drive, but Triple B was. And as we were going, she was my navigator. And what I knew to be about a two to two and a half hour drive was turning into a three hour drive. Now you may not be familiar with the geography of the state of Ohio, but let's say it's a box, right? And in the top right middle corner of that box is where Cedar point is located. So now, now you know where it is in the state Columbus, where we were coming from is right dead middle in this box. Okay. So I have to go up to the top right of this box after about three hours and a very full bladder and a very angry demeanor. uh, We were theoretically getting closer to Cedar point and uh, my navigator said, we're almost there. We're almost there. Three and a half hours go by almost there, almost there until we are just about there and we look around, there's no roller coasters. We were actually at Cedar Point uh, Recreational Park, <laughs> and that is located in Toledo, Ohio. Now, again, <laughs> let's go back to this box reference. We are now in the top left of this box, not the top right of this box. We are two hours from where we need to be. And I simply just got out of the car. I went pee on the side of the road, got back in the car and silently and frustrated drove all the way to Cedar Point. By the time we got right there, Point. we were huh? the right Cedar Point. Cedar Point amusement park. When we got there, we were already down about two hours. And Triple B is is uh is is a pretty witty gal. And she realized that this is this is something we have to remedy because we lost a lot of this day already. So we paid the fast pass, which was about $90 per person. But you got to go in this special line on all the biggest rides. Thank God it was worth it to us because we don't go to amusement parks enough to make it worth 
you know, maybe once a year, once every other year, right? So if you're going to go there on such an infrequent basis and you lost already a quarter of your day, the ability to do all the rides, which we were able to, there was no line longer than 15 or 20 minutes because we bought this extra thing, saved my day, saved the experience. And uh, it was actually a pretty funny story at the end of the day because we could giggle about it. Had we gotten there and to wait in line, everything, I would only half the rides, I would have been pretty upset. <laughs> With that being said, I can imagine that this, you know, equity has been a very strong statement lately, right? Equity, equity, not equality, but equity. And I think that the people who can barely afford and have been saving up to go to these amusement parks that have to, you know, that they're proud that they can take their family of four or five or six to these amusement parks and they have to stand in line and watch wealthier people cut in line on them all day. I could see how that could irk you. I could see how that could rip you apart. So it's, 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 it's definitely something that we all need to consider when we just pass this as a accepted behavior, because all this is saying is if you're rich, you get to have a great time. What, you know, wave at all the poor people as you go by. The other thing is the way that you read this article and the way it describes it, it just means to me that if you pay some extra money, you get to also wait in the line over here. <laughs> which is exactly what's going to happen. I'm glad you were going there. The money isn't that high. So it's not going to throw out that many people. So you're basically going to have two lines. One's 45 minutes, one's 37 minutes. Is yeah. that worth the extra money? And the one I don't in the 37 know. minute line paid money. Yeah. And, and then all the 45 minute people laugh at the 37 minute ones. So I, I feel like if you're going to do it, you know, make it unique, make it worth it. Cause I just don't, I don't. Yeah. Because they're it. doing away with the fast pass. They're doing away with the let's pay 90 bucks to actually get access to the front <laughs> of the line. And that to me was worth it because mm -hmm. yeah, you're paying. So if you're going to scrape up the money for a ticket, which I think they're like a hundred, how, how, what did you pay to get in? Into Disney? Yeah. I think it was 140 bucks. Right. So it's 140 bucks per head. If you're mm -hmm. going to go that much longer, just pay the extra 90 bucks. Just consider it a loss. Yeah. This this to me is gonna is gonna rival something else that you're familiar with is the TSA line. Once you got TSA pre-checked, that line's longer than the regular line. Mm -hmm. Only now you go through a normal process of airline security rather than the bullshit security theater you get with the peons. But it doesn't take Fair any enough. faster. So you just have to yeah. do with less headache and the same amount of time. That's what this reminded me of. If you're gonna pay yeah. 20 bucks, you're just gonna be in two lines. And both lines are gonna give you the same amount of quality. So mm -hmm. what are they trying to do other than say, back off, the line is the line, deal with it. Just a money generator. That's all it is. Well, that's the irony is that there's a specific quote in here from the guy who runs the parks unit that says, this is not a money grab. Bullshit, it is a money grab. Horseshit, horseshit. What else would it be? What else would it be? If you're creating another line for more money, tell me it's not a money grab. Tell it to my face. You fucking liar. <laughs> and the, the tone of this is, you know, so this guy from touringplans.com, he says, they're trying to make money off not waiting in line. Bullshit. You're going to be waiting. Mm -hmm. So what it allows you is the opportunity to, if you see 
an imbalance in the lines, take advantage of it. What I do like about this article, which doesn't go against what you were saying, is the changes announced Wednesday include a new daily planner called the Genie, which I presume is the Latin Genie, that's accessible for free on mobile devices. It recommends when to visit specific attractions, shows, and restaurants based on customer preferences. It will update the suggested itineraries during the day, taking advantage of shorter lines where the guests are in the park. So if you're in the park and you're walking around and you see that the line for the Matterhorn is only a 12-minute wait, boom, you beeline to the Matterhorn. That's valuable. But they're not charging for that. You know what? If, if, if this wasn't a money grab then what these parks should really do is try to understand how long they want their lines and how they want their experience of their people and their patrons to to have great example, right? We went to Disney during COVID uh, at at the end of COVID here and they had I think they said it was 25 or 40% occupancy. I don't know. Still felt very full to me. The lines were very long, but mainly because they were, everyone was six feet apart. We did get on most everything within 30 minutes. So that's pretty good by Disney standards, but these, they have to make a serious judgment call to say, where is your line of how many people are you going to allow in your park before you cap it and say, we're done. Yeah. This is it. And this is the experience we're selling. Nobody should be waiting in lines longer than an hour. And that, and, and, and create that level of scarcity in your ticket, as opposed to packing these parks crammed full of people, sweaty, angry, screaming kids, screaming people, you can't even get food in some of these places now. Like you uh, take even currently right now, we're in really bad shape because nobody wants to work. Right. Like that's a whole different political conversation we can have one day on the show. But right now getting these just barely above minimum wage workers to go in there and make a hamburger for you in these parks, the lines are enormous. So you can't eat because everybody has nowhere else to go. You can't travel outside the country unless you're well, you know, you're wanting the few countries will actually let us in because of COVID. So they go to these amusement parks now and they spend their money there and they're packed, 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 packed. You can't eat, you can't drink, you wait in line all day. Your kids are pissed off and frustrated. You're hot, pissed off and frustrated. Half the time you got to be wearing a mask. So you're breathing your own air in over and over and over. And then after you're gone, you look in your pocket, you look in your wallet, you got no money left. And you're, you're wondering why the fuck did I just spend my day off so that my wife and my child could scream and cry all day long and I'm broke. And is that the experience you're trying to sell? Happy earth. Yeah. And you give me 20 more dollars. You get to wait in a little shorter line. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Got a little low out of you on your really good day. <laughs> All right, brother. This was a good show. So much show. But we got to bring it to a close. All uh, right. Next week's show, which is on September 9th, is actually the birthday show for our on and off again vice host, Mr. Jones. Hmm, I wonder if he'll make it. 
he will turn a miraculous 42, I believe. I think he's and one yes, of the older he will ones. We'll have yeah. to decide whether or not to join us. My guess is he will not join us unless he does an early birthday celebration uh, because little man needs to go to bed. But I wouldn't put it past him to say can't make it. So we will toast to him with our brown next week, whether he is with us or not. Any closing thoughts, my man? Nope. I think uh, it was a great day finished by a great show. And now I'm going to go have a great, wonderful night of sleep because Spaker seven got me a little twisted by the end of the night. Yeah. It's a strong right on, right on. <laughs> Am I slurring my words yet? No. Oh, all right. Well, you could always, you could always that I can that tell. up in post. <laughs> You can email us here at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. You can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 602-529-4562. You can leave a note, voice message or an email for me or for Leon or for Mr. Jones. Anybody that's ever been on the show, we'll track them down and get an answer for you. We would love you for you to refute anything we said on the show or give us some ideas for content. Anyway, that wraps up our, our Brown Bulletin for this week. Catch us again next time. Same Brown time, same Brown channel. Thank you and have a good night, sir. Good night, sir. I'm empty. I'm empty as well. This place is dead anyway, man.